0: Good to see you guys today. Everybody doing all right? Everybody doing all right? Good, good. Welcome to New Life Church. I want to say hi to those of you who are watching from a distance online. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And uh, we are so thankful for you today here at New Life. Our mission is to make Jesus the center of our life, of our church, and of our community. And We're going to pick up where we left off last week, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or click in your smart devices to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. We uh, had intended to do a one message last week uh, to cover a few things, and um, the Lord showed me that that was not going to be the case, so we were going to take a little time and walk through this text uh, in Matthew chapter 4. The title of the message is called, The Devil is a Liar. We established last week, if you missed it or want to maybe try to maybe remember what was said last week, I encourage you to go to our webpage, nlcj.org. You can click sermons there or go to our YouTube channel. You can pick it up from there as well. But we established last week that the devil is a liar. That's not something that was just made up. That's what what he originates from. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 8. He said he's the master of deception and he's the father of lies. He speaks nothing Of truth, and some of the name, uh, some of the meaning of the name uh, from Jesus, uh, from from what Jesus was describing about the devil is he's a slanderer. His name means he's a slander. He's an accuser. He's an adversary. He's someone who ridicules. Someone who gnaws at you, nips at you, constantly trying to find ways to push buttons and find ways to to create uh, chaos. In our life, and certainly in our mind, and um, and so we we come to this story in Matthew chapter four, and Jesus is being led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness for forty days, and there he's going to take time to pray and take time to fast. And Bible says he was definitely hungry at the end of that. I'd be hungry after day one for sure, and um, and and. We're in the middle of, of a 14-day church-wide prayer and fast, and if you're new to that news, I would just encourage you um, to go to our webpage, nlcj.org, and on the, at the, near the bottom of our homepage, you'll see an area that talks about this fast and this time of prayer that we're in, and we provide daily devotions. We provide some encouragement about why fasting is important, some biblical insight on that, and we also have those printed out at the back at the connecting guest area at the back of the sanctuary you can pick one of those up but jesus was in the middle of that and it was there that the devil came to him to tempt him and to try to lie to him and but before he was sent into the wilderness this is a part that i just i didn't catch last week um, but the lord showed it to me this week prior to chapter 4 and chapter 3 jesus is gone he gets water baptized by john the baptist in the jordan river and 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 as as he after he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove. and, And then it says the voice from heaven, which is God's voice, speaks loudly and publicly and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is who I delight in. And so publicly, Jesus is being water baptized. And publicly, God's voice is spoken from heaven. For all to hear and certainly for Jesus to take to heart that he belongs to God and that he is his son and that God takes great delight in him. And so he has that one of the final audible voices of God speaking to him as he is now driven and led into this wilderness experience where a place that could be kind of feeling like he's isolated and separated from others. Certainly he's by himself. No other people are around. He's he's depressed sacrificing food, and he's spending time to hopefully draw near to to God. And this is right before he enters into his public ministry. And he goes through this time, and the devil, the tempter, the slanderer, the accuser, the ridiculer, the one who gnaws, comes to him and tries to lie to him. And he opens it up, and he says to him, If you are the Son of God. So right off the bat, he tries to lie and get doubt sown into Jesus' heart and mind about whether or not he truly belongs to God. And we talked about that lie last week, how the devil will try to come to us and lie to us about our relationship with God. And won't you know it? God reminds us of that again today, spontaneously. James and I didn't talk about that transition part of worship or anything. But the God, I think God is trying to get us to know, hey, you are beloved. Beloved is mentioned about 112 times throughout Scripture, meaning you are loved by God and you are liked by God. Sometimes we don't like ourselves. Some days we don't like ourselves. Some moments we don't like ourselves. If we could kick ourselves, we'd be kicking ourselves. But it's hard to do that. We might pull something out, and we'd definitely be down and out if we try that. Maybe some of you hurt. Flexible that way. I'm not quite that way. But the devil comes to us and does that. And he tries to lie to us about our relationship with God. So that's what lie number one is about. And the thing is, anytime you and I get earnest and sincere and try to continue in the path and the trajectory of pursuing a life with God, the devil will find ways to try to come to you and me to lie to us about our relationship with God. He will try to lie to us about anything relatable, to the Lord. And if there's ever a time in our life where we may feel distant and far from God, he will come to you at that moment as well. And he will try to lie to you to to get you to think you should not be able to get back to God. You should not be able to draw near to God. You've done this, you've done that, you've thought this, you've thought that, you've acted this way, you've acted that way, whatever it might be. You've not kept all of the commandments in your heart. Whatever it is he likes to throw at you. Because he does not like it and he cannot stand it when any person connects with jesus and begins to walk in their purpose with god and live in a relationship with god because he knows the enemy knows that hey if i can get these people to buy the lie and they don't connect with and love the lord and love jesus he knows what will happen if if that does take place if people do connect with Jesus, if they do walk in a relationship with the Lord, eternity changes. Eternity changes. Eternity changes. Just like everything in this world is a, re, generally revolves around money, most decisions in biggest places to smallest places revolves around money. The devil's playground is eternity. He does not want anyone to make that choice, that connection, And get that revelation that you were loved by God and that God loves you, God created you and have a relationship with you because he knows eternity will change. And when eternity changes, he knows that generations will change. Relationships will change. And when relationships change, the enemy knows, hey, it won't be long, people are gonna be loving Jesus with every fiber of their being and they're gonna be loving him, worshiping him, serving him, living for the purpose for which they were created and then boom, game over. Drop mic. He knows that. He knows what that end result can look like for us. And so he fights hard against that and he finds ways to wiggle his way in and connive us and be he's crafty and, 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 and conning and he tries any way he can to bring lies to our minds and sow doubt into our heart. One of the first lies we addressed last week, our relationship with God. Today we're going to look at lie number two. Lie number two begins in verse five. It says, The devil then took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you today for giving us your word that we can read, that we can hear. And today we pray, God, as it was written on pages, write it on our heart. Write it in our soul today. Let it be forever imprinted in us what we need to hear today so that it will truly grow us, it will change us, it will strengthen us, it will correct us, it will help us to become who you created us to be, to live on this earth. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And help me, God, fill my heart, fill my mouth with your word. In Jesus' name, everyone can say amen. I mean, so lie number two begins in, these, in this section. The enemy takes Jesus, I think in his mind, to the city, because he's in the wilderness, he takes him to the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem. And I think this, one, one revelation of this today is that area can represent the people of God. So he takes him, and he's in this wilderness time. And he tries to come to him. And he said, look, look at the city. Look at this city. It's, people, it's the people of God. And he comes to him, and he tries to lie to him. And I think lie number two is this. The devil will try to come to us and lie to us about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to talk about that. And why that is is because the devil hates unity. He hates reconciliation. He hates the restoration of broken relationships. He hates peace between people. He hates love being expressed towards others. Because all of that is a picture of who God is. And the work of God in our hearts. And so he... Right off the bat, before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, the devil comes to him and tries to lie to him about the people of God. Try to sow this lie into his heart and into his mind. And he does it because he knows Jesus is the one who's able to save the world. He's the one who's able to bring the people together. And in our context, he hates it. The enemy hates it when God's people are truly together. Not just in physical locale in proximity, but together in purpose, in mind, in unity, in harmony. Look at it with me in Psalm 133. In the New Testament, when the, on the day of Pentecost, as they were leading up to the day at Pentecost, they were found in the upper room praying. About 120 people praying. And it said they were of one mind and of one purpose. And it was on that day God came, God poured out the Holy Spirit, and the day of Pentecost was known for the the birth of the New Testament church. Harmony existed, unity prevailed, a togetherness was in their heart, a peace for one another, a love for one another. And David talks about this in Psalm 133. It's actually one of the psalms of ascent, meaning they would sing this particular psalm and and a few others as they were on their way into the holy city, into the temple to sing and worship God. And Psalm 133 says, How wonderful and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. For harmony is, as he describes how it can be, harmony is as precious as the anointed oil that was poured over Aaron's beard and ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. And then he says, let me express it this way. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. David understanding the context of of. of of the land and the layout of the land and all of these things that were a part of the land of that day. And he describes harmony being as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon. Let me give you a little bit of background on this. One scholar notes this, that Mount Hermon stood uh, about 9,200 feet above sea level. And the dew on Mount Hermon is the principal source of water for the Jordan River at its base. The Jordan River then flows about 127 miles down to the Sea of Galilee, and at its deepest point is 1,300 feet deep. And out of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River then flows and empties itself into the Dead Sea, averaging about 6 million tons of water every 24 hours. 6 million tons of water every 24 hours. What is David getting at? I think one of the things he's getting at is this. He's saying harmony is like the dew that ultimately becomes the power source of six million tons of water in the Dead Sea. A little bit of dew ultimately drips down, falls down, trickles down, goes down Mount Hermon, hits the banks of the Jordan River. It rises, it flows 127 miles down to the Sea of Galilee. At its deepest point is 1,300 feet. It then travels some more on down to the Dead Sea, averaging emptying 6 million tons of water every 24 hours. Every day, 6 million tons of water is being emptied into the Dead Sea, all because a little dew is on top of Mount Hermon. What is David getting at? Harmony is like that dew that ultimately becomes that power source and power flow of water. He said, man, when it, the reason it's so pleasant and so good and so wonderful when God's people are together in harmony and unity with one another of one mind and of one purpose and have, have relationships that are for Christ and for each other. Hey, it's like refreshing like this dew because this dew ultimately flows down this mountain and becomes a power source. And a power flow of water. Lots of water. Six million tons of what's a lot of water formed from a little bit of dew. And so the devil takes him to this city of Jerusalem, representing the people of God. And he begins to try to attack in his mind other people. In his mind. Does any you don't have to raise your hand because I know at the risk of looking crazy, but I'll just raise it sometimes for you and myself. You ever have conversations in your head about with other people? It's just you and those conversations. Who wins those? (laughs) What's the outcome of those? I would probably say most of the time we err on the side of not having the real conversation. And so throughout our own moment of time that goes on in our head, we think of all the things we would say, and we presume all the things they would say, right? And generally what happens is we get so fed up and so frustrated, we don't even want to look at that person when we see them. Or we act a certain way, maybe act distant, or whatever it is, or act like everything's all kosher and good. thoughts. Jesus goes into this time of prayer and fasting with one final, one final thought, the truth from heaven, God's voice. So in his process of being tempted in the wilderness, of being lied to, he has to fight to remember the truth of God's voice. And so you and I, as we go through this process of life, dealing with each other. We have to try to get ourselves, we have to fight to get ourselves to remember the truth of what God has said and believe truth over the lies. And so he takes him here, and then he, then he takes him up to the highest point of the temple. And What does he tell him to do? The devil tells him, hey, jump off. Jump off in here. He even uses some scripture. Rascal. Man, he's told you he's tricky. Uses scripture to try to get Jesus to believe his lie. What scripture does he use? He uses Psalm 91, but he only uses a portion of it. He only uses a portion of Psalm 91 where he tells him, hey, scriptures say hey, he will order his angels to protect you, will hold you up with your hands, you won't even hurt your feet, on the stone. But let's look at Psalm 91. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Look at verse 1. This is, these are some parts he doesn't say. Verse 1 says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Why didn't he tell him that? He said, this I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge. Man. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. On down in verse 9. He says, says, if you make the Lord your refuge then, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home. And then here's the part the, the devil threw at Jesus He will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And then that's where he stops. Look at verse 13. He doesn't say this part to him. He says, you, talking about the person, you will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. What does the devil liken to in Genesis 3? A serpent. Most cunning, crafty one. He doesn't tell Jesus that part. He throws in a little bit of Scripture to twist and to try to make Jesus doubt what is real. Here's here's where I think he's going in in one one part of this revelation is this. Jesus, you are entitled to think what you want to think and do what you want to do without the consideration of what God thinks or what God's guidance is for you right now. He throws a little bit of scripture, tosses a little bit his way, I think, to get Jesus to think this. You're entitled to think what you want to think. You're entitled to just do what you want to do. And you don't have to consider what God thinks about you or this situation or that person. You don't have to take God's guidance in the matter. You can do what you want to do. You can think what you want to think. Let's 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 break it on down. Let's make it a little personal. You can burn bridges. You can isolate yourself from other people. You can cut people off in your life. You can assume the worst about others. You're entitled to build fences and not bridges. You can get angry and stay angry at people. You can get bitter and stay bitter and not get better. And you can live offended if you so choose. Because after all, if you do that, he's got angels that's going to take care of you. You see how twisted that is? How the enemy will use a little bit of truth, but out of context, and twist it, and get us to think, man, I, maybe I can do. Maybe I can think. Maybe I should be that way. God's got me. But what we don't f- remember is what, G- what the devil didn't throw at him. Toss at him, quoted him, was that we need to make God our refuge. Not ourselves, not our portion of the truth, not our side of the story. We need to make God our refuge. Put ourselves under his shadow, under his wings, under his arms, under his care. Because when we do that, that empowers you and me to walk all over the lie and let truth prevail when we allow God to be big and true and real in our hearts. And the enemy will try to come to us and tell us that. Hey, you can think that. You're entitled to think that. You can have that thought. You can do that thing. You don't have to talk to the Lord about that. Come on. He knows your heart, right? He knows your heart. God knows my heart. Yeah, but the problem is we don't know it. We don't know how deceitful and wicked it can be sometimes. We don't know how full of stuff it can get sometimes. And that's why we got to lay it down. That's why we got to let ourselves be under the shadow of the Almighty. And so the devil took him to the city of Jerusalem, representing God's people, to try to lie to him about people. And he takes him to the holy temple, and he tells him to jump off using a little bit of Scripture, thinking he's got him, thinking he's going to sow this doubt, going to sow this lie into his mind. And what happens? Jesus comes around, and he says this. Well, Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. You must not prove the character of God. In other words, Jesus saying, I won't do anything intentionally to go against God's character about other people. I will not do anything intentionally to go against God's character concerning other people. This has been going on a while. From the beginning, it happened with Adam. Adam blamed Eve. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Saul, King Saul, despised David. David was appointed to be king, but yet, excuse me, David was anointed to be king, but not yet appointed to be king. Saul was still king. David was being pushed forward into the spotlight. God was setting him up for his future. And God was setting Saul up for his. And as a result, Saul had this thing about David that he just could not get over. He just could not swallow. He just could not put past him. And in 1 Samuel 18, you can read about it. But it said that Saul viewed David with a jealous eye. That Saul was often found with a spear in his hand and David was often found with a harp in his. And the question is, what's in our hand often or the statement rather what's in our hand often reflects what's in our heart Saul had a spear David had a harp we can look at it kind of like this people with spears in their hands and in their heart harbor offense manipulate have jealousy They're angry. They live with resentment. They live very discontent. But people with harps in their hand often have this going on in their heart. They're often more forgiving. They're often more happy, happier for other people. They're generally content where they're at. They're often peaceful with others, and they have a humble disposition there and in their attitude. And such was the case in that story with David and with Saul. What's in our hand often reflects what's in our heart. This even happened in the New Testament. This happened with a guy named Apostle Paul. Paul tried to tell us in Philippians 3, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I hadn't made it. Because prior to that, Paul and a guy named Barnabas, another church planter, another leader, another strong voice for the church, strong encourager and teacher, Paul and Barnabas got into a fight. He said their disagreement with each other was so sharp, their tempers flared, that they ended up going, ended up going separate ways. You can read about it in Acts 15. Apostle Paul, who wrote to Timothy, Titus, if you want to be a leader, you want to be an elder, you want to be a deacon, you want to be a bishop, you want to be this, an overseer, you've got to be calm and patient with each other. And Paul, learning from, knowing, Their disagreement was so sharp that he and Barnabas separated ways. They both went different ways, continuing to do what God wanted them to do, but it just was not together. Man. Jesus spoke on this in Matthew chapter 11. I think the the Holy Spirit has caused me to dig into this a little more this week and not just breeze through it, blow through it last week with just a thought, is because I do believe so many people in this day and time are dealing with, wrestling with, and some are allowing offense to rule in hearts and minds. Because the enemy knows, the devil knows, if he can get people offended at each other, especially God's people offended at each other and just walking around with a chip on your shoulder, walking around with a fence in your heart about whatever it is takes your complete heart, soul, mind off of the Lord and why God created you and put you on this planet. We may feel that from time to time, the offense, the bitter, the anger, whatever it is, but we can't allow ourselves to live there. We've got to get it to to God and let God forgive us, and we've got to be willing to forgive others, and we've got to be willing to have conversations and be willing to deal with our self and swallow our pride and not go our separate ways, but together walk in harmony and unity. Because I think... Where the cord of three strands, Ecclesiastes tells us, is not easily broken. If we can be together, and God being the central thread in our life together, then man, how much more can you and I accomplish? How much more can we do? Just think about our world right now. How much more and greater could the church be if we were truly unified, if we were truly together, if we truly looked out for each other, if we truly didn't talk about each other, but we truly loved and genuinely cared and walked it out as hard and difficult and as challenging as relationships can be, but we choose to do the hard in order to see the good come out of our life. Amen? And so Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 11. He, um, he's out doing his ministry, and John the Baptist is in prison, and he hears about what Jesus is doing and he sends his, he asks his disciples go go to this go to Jesus and ask him are you the real messiah is it true you're the real deal And Jesus tells his disciples go back and tell John He says go back and tell him look the Blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, the good news is being preached to the poor. All these amazing things are happening. Go back and tell John that, but also tell him this. Look at this, verse 6. Look at this, he tells. Is it on the screen? Verse 6, he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he, happy is he, fortunate is he, who is not offended because of me. And then Jesus goes on and talks to the crowd as his disciples walk away. And he says, let me, let me tell you something about this John the Baptist. He goes, this John the Baptist is the real deal. He goes, this John the Baptist is the real deal. He was a forerunner for me. He was here to prepare the way for me. He was a great man. He did. He was doing, He was crushing it, as we would say. As I would say he was crushing it he was nailing it this guy was not afraid he was blazing a trail for me the Messiah but in this w- moment of weakness he had to ask am I real and I want you to let him know hey blessed is he who does not get offended because of me What I do or what I don't do. That needs to be settled in his heart. Offense cannot live in John's heart. And then he goes on, he tells him in verse 11. He said, surely I say to you. Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. What? That's how much Jesus thinks of John the Baptist. Talking publicly good about John the Baptist. I got a feeling Jesus knew John's not gonna let offense get in his heart. No. He's gonna swallow it. He's gonna be good. He's gonna be all right. And you see, that's, that's what can happen for us when we don't let offense and bitterness and all the other ill effects take place in our hearts and our minds toward other people is Jesus can stand up for us and he can honor us. He can advocate for us. And he says, hey, there's not been one greater than John the Baptist. And he, then he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can that happen? Least in the kingdom be greater than this John, the Baptist. I think it. I think it's tied to not letting offense, separation, break down, conflicts destroy God's well-intended relationships with each other. And I think Jesus says hey the way forward the way forward in peace and unity reconciliation love and all those things is not living with believing the lies but living believing the truth the enemy came to Jesus try to lie to him about the very people he was sent to save Just think about it. If Jesus bought that and thought, you know, yeah, you're right. These people aren't worth it. Why would I want to go through all that suffering? These people aren't worth it. Thankfully, he did not. He showed us, hey, I overcame this by believing truth. You can also overcome this by believing the truth. And here's one of the great things Paul told us in Philippians 4, final verse. These scriptures also say, That when we find ourselves battling lies, when we're weary from wrestling the lies of the enemy, here's what he tells us to do. Philippians 4 verse 8. From the Passion, it says, Keep your thoughts continually fixed. On what? On all that is authentic and real. Keep your thoughts continually fixed on all that is honorable and admirable, beautiful, and respectful. Question What's honorable and admirable, beautiful, and respectful about the people God has put in your life? Paul says, Keep your thoughts fixed on that. I want you to think for a minute. Think for a minute about people in your life where there may be a source of a frustration, a a conflict, an issue, an unknown, mysterious. I don't know where they stand. They don't know where I stand. They don't know what I'm thinking. Keep your thoughts continually fixed on what is honorable about them. What is honorable admiral about them. Man, that keeps fighting at a minimum low, right? Keep your thoughts on what is beautiful about them. That keeps jealousy out of our heart. That keeps comparing myself with others way away from me when I can think what is respectful about them. Because here's what I think happens. When we keep our thoughts continually fixed on that type of thing towards other people, God opens our heart and our eyes up to see the same about us. Because God wants you to see it the way he sees it. He wants you to see you the way he sees you. You're not a terrible person. You're not a terrible person. Might have said some terrible things. Might have thought some terrible thoughts. You're not a terrible person. Will you stand? What's honorable, admirable, beautiful, respectful about God's people in your life? As we go through these last we got two courses we're going to go through. We're doing these because want us to have a moment. We can think about that question. And we can consider how many times this week or over the last little bit of time we've allowed the enemy's lies to be bigger than God's truth in our mind about other people. And you might be living with one of them. And your home might have been filled with tension discord just trying to ignore each other just trying to walk on eggshells or you might have just had an all drag, just a knockdown, down drag out argument right before church I don't know you're not terrible you're not terrible I don't know who that's for you're not terrible let the goodness and grace of God wash over you today Let the Holy Spirit flush your heart and remind you of who you are so that you and I can think about what is beautiful, admirable, honorable, and respectful about the people, God's people, brothers, sisters in Christ, He has put in our life because we're in this together and we're in the same family. We're not even just on the same team. We're in the same.